All right, everybody, let's get started. Okay, we're all excited. We want to hear about the Stateless Society. Okay, are you guys done? Okay, thank you. Okay, so uh, what we're talking about, let me clarify, because there's two types of talks that have been given lately at Mises U. So one of them where I'm talking about like private law and military defense and how would that be handled in a, in a private sector, we're doing that later in the week. So that's the one called the market for security on the schedule. So if you were here for that and now you're like, you know, I wouldn't have come here, you, you're feel free to leave. That's fine. But I just want to clarify because that's such a big topic. I really do have someone leaving. That's awesome. All right. Uh, so. <laughs> Jeez, okay. So. so this is a person interested in private tanks. So, because uh, th that, that's such a big topic. So here, this is more about just things besides that, but how, how would it be handled in a, in a free society? Uh, two housekeeping announcements, though. So on your schedule for Saturday, you can see, if you've looked ahead, there's a thing for the, what's called a liberty pitch. So what that is, it's you guys get the chance to come up and make your fast pitch for either, I think it's like libertarianism or Austrian economics, I believe, if we're doing the same as last year. So and there's there's prizes. It, it was hilarious last year. So even if you don't want to do it and just want to be in the crowd, it'll be more fun if we have a bigger crowd. So I just want to say that. But also, if you're thinking about doing it, don't like roll out of bed Saturday morning and start brainstorming at that point. Th be thinking of it now, and even you can even practice. Feel free. All right. And so because it, again, it'll it'll be better. You know, get get a pithy thing going. So I just want to mention that. The other thing is you may have seen this thing floating around. <laughs> you know. I'm sitting here, I'm trying to be, be a respectable economist. I don't know how Paul Krugman's ever going to take me seriously when we're doing stuff like this. I have nothing to do with it, but I just want to clarify, because for people coming from previous years, so the karaoke is, today's Tuesday, right? It's tonight, and it's at the Sky Bar, all right? Friday, we are having music again, but it's different. So in previous years, we've gone to Bourbon Street, and we've brought the equipment, and we do the... That's not happening this year. If you want, if you want to sing, it's tonight. All right, on Friday, it's going to be live music. So to be clear, I get to sing both nights <laughs> because I have a need for attention, all right? But I just want to clarify. So, but for real, make sure if you were planning on singing, you got to do it tonight. It's not, not next, or it's not on Friday. Okay. So first, I'm picking these terms carefully. Uh, Albert J. Nock, actually, in his classic Our Enemy, the State, has a discussion where he explains why he's using that term state as opposed to government. And I used to not really care. I, I would have people occasionally, like when I used to write for lourockwell.com, and I would talk about, oh, the government. Or, and I used to have some people email me and say, Bob, I think you're using language improperly. It's, you're not really against the government. You're against the state. And I thought, what's the big difference? Anyway, I do now try to use that term because it, for some people, the government is a pretty broad category. Just mean anytime there's like authority. So like some people think of the family, there's a, there's a government there. Or if you're in a church and you feel like, no, I agree to abide by the rules of the church. If the elders say that, you know, I did something wrong, and then I, I submit to their, their uh, authority. So anyway, that's why I'm using the term state. And also in, in Rothbard's writing in particular, you can see how he defines it. And it's, it's a much, in my view, crisper thing about what is the thing that I'm against in this talk. And so when I say the economics of a stateless society, I'm saying, could there be a social organization? Could we have society without this institution that claims to have a monopoly on um, the the proper use of force. So it's not that the it's not that the state is the only thing that gets to use force, 
but they're saying we're the ones in charge of the, the authoritative use of it or the legal use of it, and we might delegate it, or we might say is the state, hey, if a burglar breaks into your house, you know, you're allowed to shoot the person, but we're ultimately the final arbiters of that. We're the ones who decide what's the lawful use of violence in this region and that they have a monopoly on that, and also that they have the right to collect taxation, all right, that those are, the, are the, some of the elements involved in, in what, what a state is, and so that's the, the institution that we're going to be talking about. So if, if that's what we have in mind here, consider this quote, for if the bulk of the public were really convinced of the illegitimacy of the state, if it were convinced that the state is nothing more nor less than a bandit gang writ large, then the state would soon collapse to take on no more status or breadth of existence than another mafia gang. Hence the necessity of the state's employment of ideologists, and hence the necessity of the state's age-old alliance with the court intellectuals who weave the apology for state rule. Now, believe it or not, you're thinking who, who what that it was somebody, it was in grad school, it was a young Janet Yellen wrote that. Of course that wasn't Janet Yellen. It was Murray Rothbard. So the first lesson for today is trust no one, all right? Some guy in a suit in CNBC telling you something about how the government works or how the economy works and what the feds got. No, trust no one. Use your common sense. You know that wasn't Janet Yellen. Don't listen to me. Trust no one. Okay. <laughs> Starting now, though, you should trust me for this lecture. Okay. So I'm going to be going through a bunch of specific applications or areas, but in general, it's, it's odd that the person defending the voluntary interaction of people in society is the one who's on the defensive that there seems to be this general presumption that, oh yeah, the state should be doing all these various things, and if you're going to be some crazy libertarian making a case for complete privatization or complete free market in, in these various areas, that you're the one who's got the crazy idea and you have to justify it. And the reason I'm saying that's sort of odd and that you would think there would be this prima facie um, standard or, or case for voluntarism is that in these other areas, it's, it's where the person who wants the state to be involved is the one who has to explain why, oh, Yes, there is this issue of this problem of how people interact with each other and the way we're going to get things done and the way to, to smooth out these disagreements or the way we're going to solve this problem is to have one group have all the guns, they get to make all the decisions, they get a monopoly, and everything will work out fine. Right? That in general, you know that you know, if it comes to giving TVs to people, how do, how do we organize ourselves collectively to distribute TVs? And you know if you had the state in charge of that and have a monopoly, there'd be all sorts of problems with that. The TVs would be a lot more expensive than they'd be you know, with competitive markets, that the quality wouldn't be as good, and that also there'd be corruption involved, right? That the, the, the people in charge would give TVs based on political favoritism or what have you. So that's, um, you know, that, that logic is still there in all these other areas. It's not that all of a sudden monopoly works out just fine or that prices all of a sudden are lower when it comes to police and other sorts of things we're gonna talk about, all right? So, I just want to say it's, I want to state officially up front that it, it's weird that we're the ones on the defensive, but yet th that's the problem we face. Um, so in general, also, it, it's sort of easy that it's like the people who are for state intervention in these various areas, to them, they need to think about the problem for two seconds. And then they say, oh, the reason free markets wouldn't work on this issue is because of these problems. And it's like they can just think about it for two seconds, but the entrepreneurs involved would have no clue how to do it, right? And so what I'm saying is, no, if, if there is a legitimate problem with a lot of these things, they're, they're more complex, right? So you can see why, okay, yeah, the market for TVs makes sense, but some of these other things, it's a little bit harder than that. And so you can see why 
maybe I'm not so sure markets will work. Fine, and we'll, and we'll talk about that. But again, the idea that, oh, the entrepreneurs are just clueless idiots and they can only conform to the textbook model of perfect competition, there's no reason to think that. All right, so I used to, with a younger crowd, or when I, a long time ago, I would always, this is Vanilla Ice, and the reason I say it is because he's got a famous line in his big son, got a problem, you'll all solve it. And I realize you guys have no clue who Vanilla Ice probably is, right? Okay. I probably need to switch to say I got 99 problems and the government caused every one of them, something like that. Yeah. All right. So some of this, I'm sure, is going to overlap with the other lectures you got, but repetition's fine, and I'll, I'll probably say things a little bit differently in a condensed form here. So it, Menger, um, for, for a while, it, it's not like, oh, the Austrians, because we like our little group, and we credit Menger with this, these, this insight in the origin of money. No, for, in terms of historians of economic thought, I believe he even had the entry in a, an encyclopedia of economics you know, in, in terms of who, who talked about the origin of money. All right? So this is not some Austrian thing where we're just talking about our guy. This is, you know, he was known in the field for, for this contribution. And so he pointed out that even though, even back when he was writing, that people just take it for granted that, oh yeah, the money is associated with the state. That seems like clearly a thing that the government has to be in charge of. He was saying, you know, it's odd to think that th that, that has to be the case because think about before there was money, right? So money is clearly something that is created by humans, right? It's not like apples or something, which is clearly natural. Money is clearly a social thing. Um, but yet it's also um, one of those things that we, we're going to say emerges spontaneously, but this wasn't yet fully developed at this, at this point, right? And so Menger was one of the ones who sort of advanced this theory. So the presumption was if something had been created by humans or discovered by humans or invented or whatever verb you want to use, it used to be the case that everybody just assumed, all right, so there was one small group or one smart individual who just thought of the idea and then everyone followed suit, right? So maybe some wise king one day was sitting around and said, you know, my kingdom would work a lot better if we had money. And then they started doing it and said, hey, everybody, instead of just trading things directly, like you have horses and you want to get eggs and that guy has eggs and wants horses and you have to fight each other, why don't you sell everything against, you know, these stones that are intrinsically kind of useless to you, but if, if you can sell everything against the stone, then you use the stone to buy things, trust me, it'll all be a lot more efficient. So Menger was just walking through and saying, why that couldn't be how money emerged. That's impossible. And he was listing various problems with it. So just for example, if you've not grown up in a society using money, money sounds stupid, right? If somebody explained it to people who had never used it before, the idea of using this thing that you don't actually want, you're going to give up your valuable goods and services for this thing you don't want. But the reason that makes sense is because don't worry, other people are going to likewise give up what they have for a thing they don't want. It, it sounds kind of dumb, <laughs> doesn't it? So it, it sounds like if you, know, you had a mandatory classes and had to get the textbooks and you're trying to resell them you know, to kids who don't want it, but they need to take it. And sorry. So he, so he pointed out that that's just crazy. You know, we see now that we're growing up in this world that uses money, that it makes sense. But at the time, you know, how, how would you have known that? And then there's other problems, too. Even if there were a king that realized, ah, if all my subjects used a, a medium of exchange that would allow for transactions to occur that you know, barter wouldn't allow... Uh, still, you'd have the problem of, well, what should be its purchasing power, right? So it wouldn't be enough just to say, hey, you were originally going to sell that horse for some eggs, but I'm asking you, no, sell it for stones first, and then use the stones to go buy eggs. The person selling the horse would say, okay, but then how many stones should I want to get in the transaction? I don't know what stones fetch in the market. 
right? Because if he's trying to buy eggs, you know what I'm saying? So he would need to know how many stones do I need to get as many eggs as I otherwise would have gotten, but the egg seller's in the same position. So it's like, how do you even get the thing going? All right. So you can see that the problems there, I'm just mentioning a few as to why Menger was saying, yes, we're all using money. It wasn't, it's not a natural thing. It's clearly a human institution. And yet it's not that one person just designed the whole thing from scratch because they, they couldn't have. So how did he explain it? Well, it was a step-by-step process. I'll just go through it really quickly because, again, I think you probably already heard this. So the idea was, Menger said, even in a, in a state of what's called direct exchange, so that's a more technically appropriate term than saying barter, direct exchange where people are trading things for goods that they're directly going to use, either in consumption or for production, even if we're in that kind of a framework, some goods will be more saleable, or you might say marketable, than others, right? They, they have a bigger market. So the guy going into town to trade who has this, and this, this very sophisticated, exquisite telescope, there's not that many people who are in the market that day looking for an exquisite telescope, okay? It's a, it's a very valuable thing, we can say. And so if he does find the right buyer, then maybe he can ask a lot for it. But the point is there aren't that many people looking for that. Whereas the guy going to town with a bunch of eggs, lots of people want to get eggs that day, all right? So if you walk through the logic of that, Menger was pointing out that somebody who has a relatively unmarketable or unsaleable good, if he finds somebody who wants it, and as long as what that person's offering, if those goods are more marketable than his thing, he might make that trade just as a stepping stone, all right? So he might, if he sees somebody with chickens, and he's not really going to town looking for chickens, he wants to get, I don't know what horses, but he might say, okay, I'm much more likely to find someone with horses who wants chickens than someone with horses who wants this telescope. So if he finds a guy with chickens who wants a telescope, he might swap. Okay. And so that's why things that were initially more marketable, their advantage would, would snowball. Because now the things that started out being a little bit more marketable, because of that, now more people are willing to accept them in trades, even if they didn't originally want them. So if you think about it, oh, so now more people are willing to accept it. That means it's more marketable. And so the thing could snowball in that way. And so ultimately, if one or a few goods or commodities have that snowballing process happen such that everybody in the community basically would be willing to accept that thing in trade to then go get what they want. Well, that's what, what money is. It's a universally accepted medium of exchange. Okay, so I boiled that down really fast, but notice there, Menger explained the emergence of money through voluntary, you know, rational processes. It's not that people just had this instinct to go create money. Each, but the point was, you know, each thing made sense on an individual level, but the people didn't realize the full scope of what they were doing. Nobody sat up saying, you know what, I'm going to do my part today to create money. That's not what happened. They just said, no, I want to exchange and get something, and I'm more likely to get what I want if I take this thing, using it as a medium of exchange. Okay, so that's the emergence of money, and then why historically were things like gold and silver adopted, just because once you, you think through the logic of that process, you know, I mentioned he might take chickens. Well, in general, chickens aren't really a good medium of exchange, right? Because they can, if you got to move from place to place with them, they're hard to move. They go to the bathroom, you got to feed them, they could die, right? If, if you want to buy something that's only half a chicken, you know, it's, <laughs> all right. So you see the problems there. So if you think about it, the gold and silver are great on many criteria in terms of, you know, the, the durability, the divisibility, the homogeneity, right? that's another one, because you might say, well, how come diamonds didn't serve as, as money? Because those, those seem to be pretty, but 
it, it's not like a pound of diamonds is a pound of diamonds, right? That if you have one huge diamond, that's worth much more than a bunch of smaller diamonds of the same weight. Whereas with gold, you know, an ounce of gold is an ounce of gold, right? If, unless it's like, you know, made into a coin or something. You see what I'm saying? So that's part of the issue there. So gold and silver had properties that made them particularly good for that purpose. Okay, so another thing then, so I've explained to you, you know, where money could come from. Naturally, there's no government involved. And then even in terms of making coins. So again, I think a lot of people just assume that, oh yeah, having official looking coins that are stamped. I mean, that's clearly something governments around the world do that I can't even imagine. And no, historically that, that wasn't the case. So here, uh, George Selgin, he gave a great talk here at the Mises Institute years ago on this. Um, I think he has books on it as well. I think maybe like Good Money would be the, the title or that's in the title of one of his books. So Selgin is S-E-L-G-I-N. But he just goes through the history of some of this stuff where, you know, what, what's the point of having coins if we're back on a legitimate gold standard where, where the gold is the money? So things are quoted, the prices are in weight of gold. And so the point of the coins, it's not that the stamping process is some legal thing that grants the money legal tender status. No, you can, in a market economy that's without any sort of state intervention regarding money, the, the point of stamping it and making coins is just to ease the, the transactions in terms of identifying and, and trusting that this thing really is an ounce of gold, let's say. All right, so if a merchant's selling something for three ounces of gold, then really what the transaction is requiring is the physical weight, you know, ounces of gold, and technically you could give it to them in, in whatever form you wanted, but by having coins that are stamped and, and they're hard to counterfeit, you know, they could have the, the ridges on the, on the circumference so that you can't clip them and, and shave off gold and so on. It just makes it easier so the merchant doesn't have to sit there and do chemical tests and weight it if you just give them a hunk of, you know, yellow rocks, all right? So that's, or yellow metal. So that's, that's, the, um, that's the benefit of having private coinage. And so, yes, you, you can have the private sector involved in coining money. And what Selgin also showed in the talk he gave here when he was going through the PowerPoints, the money was gorgeous, all right? So in other words, it, it wasn't just that, oh yeah, the private sector can handle it, don't worry. It's that it did a much better job at the coins all, because that if you were in business, you wanted the public using your gold coins, not your competitors. And so how would you get them to do that? Well, obviously, you know, you had to have coins that were hard to counterfeit because you wouldn't want, you wouldn't want anybody in the community to be afraid to accept coins that were stamped the way, you know, your name brand. You would want the public to know, oh, this really is one ounce of gold or whatever, one ounce of silver, whatever the coin says it is. So there was, you know, technological techniques to make that happen. But beyond that, why not make the thing really pretty to look at, right? So that's what they would do. And so this is an area where the government or the state came in and eventually took it over. But this is clearly not something that you need the state to be in charge of. Okay, likewise for banking... Um, and here I'm also partly walking through this just so you can keep these functions distinct. So we've talked about how money would emerge sp spontaneously, if you will. And again, I'm, I'm using that phrase just to mean it's not that one group sat there and planned it, but each individual human act or action in that process was rational or purposeful. So you can see how that would emerge. But now, all right, what about banking? Well, even now we've talked about maybe the community uses gold, let's say, and we've even got mints, private mints that stamp out coins. And so everyone's walking around with gold coins. Still, there's inconveniences from that, that if you've got to make a big purchase, 
you know, you want to buy a huge plot of land or you want to buy a factory, something that's going to be 300 pounds worth of gold. You don't want to have to actually load that up and, and travel and take 300 pounds of gold to the, you know, to the place where the deal is going to go down, right? You could get robbed. Something could happen. It's just physically hard to do. So it's expensive to physically transport it. So this is partly why, you know, you, you have a role for, for banks. And so here, let me also, well, here, let me talk about this first. So what the, what the bank does here in terms of demand deposits, we're going to distinguish those from time deposits. So this is like checking accounts. Okay, so here I'm just talking about the, the function of having banks that give you checking accounts or what might call demand deposits. It's for convenience and, and safekeeping, right? As you accumulate money, you don't want to just keep it in your house, correct? Because you could lose it or there could be a fire or something. So this is why it makes sense to have you know, a central institution that of trusted third party that maintains your stuff with your name on it, literally. Okay. And so you, how would you pay for that? Well, they could charge you a monthly fee or every time you write a check, they might charge a little bit or something. And so you could have, you know, checking accounts or whatever with a hundred percent reserve banking. So in this talk, I'm not going to get into the pros and cons, hundred percent reserve banking. All I want you to get from this is it's possible, right? Because some people, because these two things have been fused in practice nowadays, a lot of people think, oh, if banks don't lend out my checking account balances, how could banks work? How could they make money? And you got to keep the, the functions distinct that they could. They would have to charge you a fee somehow, but plenty of other businesses charge fees for their service. That's how business works, right? So having the ability of a modern economy with you know ATMs around the country you could still have all that kind of stuff. It's just somehow the bank would need to charge its customers enough to cover the cost. As far as uh, savings account and time deposits, what would that look like? Well, that's where you're, you're giving money to the bank and you're genuinely lending it, as it were. Okay, so you, you might buy like a certificate of deposit. So the distinction is conceptually that if I, oh, the bank says, all right, if you give us 100 ounces of gold right now, we'll give you 105 ounces of gold in 12 months and you don't think that your money is sitting there available so that you can't demand it. So that's what a demand deposit is. So it's not in your checking account. There you bought a CD, for example. So then the bank could go take that 100 ounces of gold and lend it out at 7% interest to somebody else. And then the bank earns the spread, right? And that's all consistent with 100% reserve banking. So I, again, I just, I'm saying that because I, I know there are people who will tell you yeah, Rothbard's crazy. You know, if you took his views seriously, you couldn't have modern banking. And that's that's just not correct. You you could. That's how it would work. What's interesting on this is this what this said. I don't know if you can read in the back. It says central banks do the opposite of what the public is told. So here, um, it's funny. Mises writing in human action, this doesn't it's it's there, but you kind of have to already know the context because he's he's real fast with it and he kind of assumes the reader knows the basic history about it. Mises does that a lot in human action. He'll have a footnote and be like, now, of course, when we talk about diminishing margin too, that has nothing to do with the Weber-Fetchner law of psychology, as if, you know, most readers were like, oh, yeah, okay, phew, I thought it was the Weber. <laughs> so, um, and he, like, he's literally talking about quantum mechanics, and I mean, the guy, the guy, the guy knew a lot, you know? There's something to this Mises guy. There should be an institute. So, <laughs> but anyway, here, uh, what he's getting at is, you could talk about, uh, we would call it... For free banking or whatever term you want to use for this system, it gets confusing because there are some people now in the free what's called the free banking school who 
might write things that Rothro would have disagreed with. So I'm just saying like the generic term of free banking without talking about modern controversies, but a system where the, the government doesn't or the state doesn't do anything particular in terms of special treatment of the banking sector, just saying, you know, enforcement of contracts, right? That you're just like pizza parlors can go into business. What if people could go and, and run banks and let's say it's you know gold, a gold standard or just the, the community uses gold as money. And we have banks that emerge like this just to serve functions of convenience. And then also people um, you know, buy CDs or whatever. They make time deposits. And so that's how the bank also fulfills the role of credit intermediary, all the stuff we talk about. And then what about this issue of keeping, you know, if they have demand deposits, so the public puts 100 ounces of gold into their what they think is a checking account. And what if the bank now actually lends some of that out? and they don't keep all the reserves there sitting in the vault, what would happen? And so Mises you know, was relying on, on the literature at the time and saying the market economy, there would be strict checks to that. So let's assume that they were allowed to do that and that wasn't ruled like a violation of contract. Still, there would be strict limits on how low the reserve ratio could go, if you know modern banking terminology, all right? Because if any one bank starts issuing more loans for a given amount of gold sitting in the vault so that for all the people who have checking account balances with that bank, in a sense, if the amount of gold backing up their checking account balance gets smaller and smaller relative to the community, then what happens, there's a, there's a pretty quick check on that because the customers of the bank that has been expanding, inflating, when they deal with members of the community and they're writing checks and so on, on net, when the banks all settle up with each other, like at the end of the week, they're going to realize, okay, more of, let's say it's the Citibank that did it. Citibank's customers on net will have written more checks on their checking account balances vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the community than vice versa, right? If Citibank inflated, so now Citibank customers tend to have more money compared to everybody else. So in general, just with their dealings with other people, they will probably buy more stuff. And so when the banks all settle up with each other, they're not going to just sit there with claims on Citibank. The other banks will say to Citibank, okay, you know, our customers wrote checks on your people for a, a million ounces. Yours wrote checks given to our people for 1.2 million ounces. So you owe us 200,000 ounces of gold. Settle up. You ship it from your vault to our vaults and you have until, you know, the end of the month, like our contract says, that we are our relationship with each other. So the point is any one bank that inflates too much will quickly be brought to heel because it's not it's not that the individual customers would have to go do research and know what's the reserve ratio of this bank. It, it's a much more fundamental, quick process, even if the people in the community all accept all the banks, either either notes, like if a bank has, has notes saying the bearer of this is entitled to so many ounces, or if there's checks being written, it's fine. The merchants don't need to care about, oh, what about Citibank's ratio? They don't have to do it. They can take everything. It's just the merchant sells something to a Citibank customer, gets you know a check or a, a, a certificate saying this is like a, a gold certificate thing issued by Citibank. They're not just going to keep that paper in their cash register. The merchant is going to go to his bank at the end of the week or whatever and deposit that stuff into his business checking account. And so the point is that bank eventually then is going to get square or settle up with Citibank. So the point is, even if you allowed for fractional reserve banking legally, the market economy would have strict checks to quickly bring up a bank to heel that tried to expand. So then in that context now, think about what the central bank is supposed to do. One of the primary 
functions they will list. You go to the Federal Reserve's website and look at the history of it. One of the first things they list is they want it to be a lender of last resort. So think about that mechanism I talked about. What is now, if there's a central bank, if Citibank gets in trouble, they can just go to the central bank and they can get, you know, say, oh, we're in trouble here. We've got all these people wanting to redeem stuff and we can't. We got caught with our pants down. Oh, don't worry. We'll come and we'll be a lender of last resort and we'll bail you out. Okay. So the what the public is told is the reason we need central banking is to protect the public because we just had these fly-by-night banks. Can you imagine just having free enterprise in banking? How crazy would that be? It's the opposite. That under free bank enterprise and banking, that they would be kept to a pretty tight standard, whereas this, the role of the central bank. And also, suppose there, this is a point Mises makes too, there could be a cartel of banks and they could all expand together to get around the problem, I said, but as long as there's free entry, even if all the banks collectively, the big banks, you know, who are running the show, they say, okay, let's all agree to inflate simultaneously so we won't, you know, have the gold drained from our vaults vis-a-vis each other. Anyone can just start a new bank with a higher reserve ratio and collect all the gold from all the other people, but not if there's a central bank that strictly regulates who can enter the industry. Okay, so again, when you think about the market's check on a bank inflating and ripping off the public, the central bank, even by its own definition of of its role, knocks down those checks. Okay, who would build the roads? Everybody's favorite question. So in terms of the history, again, with a lot of this stuff, you can go and see that it's not that the state has always been doing it, and then now we're coming with this nut job idea to let the market give it a shot. No, usually what it is in these various areas is that originally it was the private sector that did it, and then the state came in and co-opted it. All right, so here too, uh, I think Tom's, he has my favorite line as he's trying to walk out. I know, go ahead. Yeah, (laughs) okay. So it's, how does it go? Do you know it or should I just try to paraphrase it? Standing here, and there's a Sears store over there, and we're all just scratching our heads. Like, well, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, for the people, yeah, for the, thank you, thank you, Tom. All right, a little cameo from Tom Woods. So, we have a podcast you might be interested in. All right, so, <laughs> so for the people listening online, what happened with Tom said there is my favorite line on this issue of, you know, geez, who would build the roads? And Tom has a thing where he says it's weird that they think in the private sector without the state there that there would be, you know, you got a bunch of customers sitting here who want to go to Sears. Sears is over there. And then they're just all like, geez, what do we do? You know, and it doesn't occur to us. Why don't we build a road? You know, so it, it is interesting. And of course, even when the state does it, it's not like like with the military, it kind of makes sense why people could think that. Right. Because it, it is largely. Um, that there's, you know, the government literally, the federal government owns the tanks and where that's an, an arm of the government. But here, it, they hire private construction companies and stuff to do that. You know what I mean? It's not like they're necessarily state employees who go out and build the interstates. So it is interesting that you would think, why, why do we need the government to do that? So anyway, early it was, um, early turnpikes were financed by the road. A good essay on this is in, um, the, the book is called The Voluntary City. It's edited by um, Alex Tabarrok and I think someone else, and I apologize if that person hears this, I can't think of what his name is, but if they got a collection of essays about the voluntary city, meaning a you know, city using just voluntary means, there's lots of good stuff in there, but there is an essay on, on the early history of road production in the United States. So here, um, look, sometimes people say, oh, the problem with this is we need to have standards, right? Yeah, it's fine to have different uh, private companies making ice cream cones because there could be crazy flavors and who cares. 
It doesn't matter if these guys say Rocky Road is one thing and these say it's something else. I didn't pick Rocky Road to be funny with road, but that was just... Um, so, but clearly with roads, like if in one intersect, if one guy's intersection, you know, one company means green means go and someone else green means stop, that, you know, you're just asking for trouble. So that's why we need to have the state running all this stuff to set the standards. And that's... In general, that's that's kind of a weak argument, right? That there's all kinds of things where there are standards in place that are not enforced by the the state or any other agency. Like so, it's not if you buy a printer, you can buy printer paper made from another company and it it fits. You ever notice that, right? <laughs> you can buy screws and a screwdriver from a different company and it works. Isn't that amazing? But so, the point is that. You know, there can be standardization and so forth, but the point is how much standardization should there be, right? There is a, you know, there's a Phillips head screwdriver, the other kind, so there's, there are differences, and the way to solve that is you say, well, I don't know where, where the, the cutoff should be, let the market decide, right? So you want to have experimentation, but there also is the need for standardization, and that's not some question you can answer a priori, and we just know what the right cutoff is. And so you might think, okay, but with stuff like road design, you know, traffic, no, I bet you you would be surprised if you haven't already read on this to see there are some people who think the, quote, standard official approach to road design is actually very deadly. So Google this guy, Hans Monderman, uh, just as one example. I saw this great video. So he's a guy, uh, it was, I think, it was, you think he's Dutch, I'm not sure. But, and so anyway, he was designing roads for a certain area and he completely revamped it. And he's talking to the reporter and he's, he's walking, and it's, a, it's an intersection. Like, there's, there's a roundabout, and there's cars coming and going. It's broad daylight, and he's talking to the guy, and he goes, watch this. I just want to show you how confident I am that my road design is good and that there's not going to be accidents. He turns around and backwards just walks out in the street. All right? And he died, but still... <laughs> no. <laughs> no, he didn't die. And all the cars just are swarming around him. It was amazing, right? So he's just going through it, all the cars. It, it looked like it was like a circus act or something, but it was, I, I believe it was real, you know? And so it, the, the point is he took away, you say, how that happened? He takes away all of the, like, there's no traffic lights, there's no signs, and it's confusing. So the driver's approaching this intersection. They don't know what to do. They're like, what the? But his point is, yes, that's what you want drivers to. You want them alert, and you don't want them dozing off and thinking, that, oh, no, the way they designed this road, I don't even have to pay attention. I'm just going to, you know, text my friend. I'm going to do it. But no, he said, that's where accidents happen is when people get lulled into not paying attention and then disaster strikes, all right? So anyway, that's just one example. Now, that might not work for, you know, what we now call interstates that, that you know, you, you want to have baby, you do want to have real fast things. But his point was that if using that approach in certain intersections where there, with the traditional model, there had been a lot of accidents, doing this, like the amount of accidents went way down. Okay, so that's just one example where, no, we shouldn't just assume, oh yeah, everybody knows the right way to design roads. No, we don't. And how would we know? And if there is just one right way to do it, then okay, there shouldn't be any problem with allowing freedom into that sector, because if someone tries something that doesn't work out, no one else will do that anymore. But the point is, you know, we, we got to allow, how would we know until we let people try? Uh, I like Walter Block's point. So he, by the way, if you want to read more on roads, he's got a whole collection on this and you know in terms of market provision of of roads where he deals with all the you know all the kind of stuff that walter block would deal with right like 
what if some company buys, you know, I live in a cul-de-sac and some company buys the thing and then how do I get out? And Walter's like, I could get a helicopter, ha, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> so it's, it's good stuff. And, but his, uh, one of his points that I really like is he goes through the statistics of how many people die on government roads year after year. And his point is, if this had been some private company's product that were doing this, there would be congressional hearings, you know, looking into this. But since it happens on roads that the, you know, the state at various levels of jurisdiction controls, they just blame it on the, on the user, right? It's, oh, because, yeah, the drunk driving or the person was going too fast or they should have had their brakes checked. They don't stop and say, well, gee, maybe the way we design this intersection is not conducive to safety. Maybe we should look at it. And there's, you can look at various, um, so, the, you can rank like the intersections and see which ones are the deadliest in America, right? There are there are watchdog groups that publish, you know, real macabre lists like that to say here's the deadliest intersections in America or per capita or what have you, and so they know about it. And so you, you, I would just would think the incentives under a private system with private ownership, they would be more likely to do something about that. Whereas now I, I found one, the one that um, the, I had a recent article on Econ Lib on the private production of roads, and so there I googled to try to find a recent case of this. And it, I think it was somewhere in Pennsylvania, like the one that won the intersection, the most deadly intersection of that year. And the story, you know, the, doing the news story about it, then said, oh, the, you know, the city planners decided to appoint a commission to look into this or something. You know, and it's just standard government, you know, their reaction to something is, oh, there's a problem. People are dying. Okay, well, we'll appoint a commission and we'll get around to it. You know. So it's not that they're sitting at night saying, ha-ha, we're killing more people. Excellent, necessarily. But the point is, it's not like they're going to lose all their customers when it's, you know, they have the monopoly on that area. Okay, so there's, there's more, there's a lot that economists could say. The big thing when it comes to roads is traffic jams. So especially if you've lived in a big city or near a big city, and you just know there's certain times of day, you, you know, twice a day typically, you just can't go anywhere near the city through the road. It's just crazy. And that's not just, up. Oh, that's a fact of life. That's what, you know, if you're living near a big city, no, that's a fact of having the roads that are underpriced, right? Because what is a traffic jam except a shortage, in, you know, in terms of economic terminology, that there's not enough, you, know, you have to be careful and precise about what's the definition of the good here, like the available road space, given how fast I want to go or something like that. But in terms of quantity supplied and demanded, the price for using that during rush hour, you know, is too low that the quantity demanded exceeds the quantity supplied, that's a shortage. And that's what it certainly looks like. So that's one element of just having these things not be owned privately. That if they were privately owned, they would charge really high prices initially that would you know, smooth the traffic flow. And then with all those extra revenues coming in, they would build more if there's free, free entry into the field. Beyond that, though, it's just funny how people come up with all these crazy scenarios about all those horrible things that would happen if we had private ownership of roads, you know, there'd be corruption. When there's literally, do you guys know what Bridgegate is with Chris Christie? I mean, there was literally a thing where his, you know, lieutenants or whatever, because they were mad at somebody politically, punished him by deliberately causing a traffic jam, right? But and it was a scandal because like a, a, an ambulance or something couldn't get somebody, like somebody died arguably because of that and they got in trouble. So, I mean, it's, we literally know that putting government officials in charge of something doesn't all of a sudden mean, phew, glad we got rid of the corruption problem. <laughs> that, that, doesn't, that doesn't happen. Also, there's really, I mean, this is becoming more um, alarming and people, more people are paying attention to it, civil libertarians, with asset forfeiture. So there was an interstate, um, I think it's I-40, it it, they went through Nashville, and it, this was happening, it was near us where some of the local news stations, when I lived in Nashville, were reporting on it. 
where they there was the claim that there were a lot of drug dealers you know, coming in, getting drugs from, I forget where they were supposed to be getting them from. And then they were coming one way on the interstate and then going the other way. And the police, you know, they set up roadblocks and their ostensible justification was, oh, we're trying to catch these deal drug dealers. But they were set up on the side where the cars with the money would be going through. If you get what I'm saying, right? They, they, even on their own story, they weren't set up on the side where the drugs would be coming in. They were set on the side where after the deal was done. And so they'd pull people over and some guy would like not trust banks. And so he'd have $10,000 in cash in his trunk. Or some guy was going to go buy a car from somebody and was bringing cash. And so the police would seize their money and then you would have to prove you weren't a drug dealer to get your money back. Right. That sort of thing. So that type of stuff, again, you, know, you could say that's government overreach. But and a lot of, you know, uh, like left leaning civil libertarian types, of course, are decrying the police abuse or whatever. But if you privatize the roads, that kind of stuff you know, wouldn't happen as easily because then the, it wouldn't be normal for the police just to be sitting there doing that, right? It's not that when you go into a Best Buy, the police tackle you and say, prove you're not a drug dealer. You know, that doesn't, because Best Buy would say, can you not do that here? That's kind of bad for business, all right? So if, if roads were privately owned, I'm just saying an offshoot of the state controlling the roads is it's not just a matter of, oh man, we got traffic jams and more car accidents than we need to. It's that it's one way of controlling all of society. Just like if they control the mail and they control the schools, controlling the roads, it's not just a matter of, oh, inefficiency. We're not Pareto Optimal anymore. Oh, shucks. It's things like, you know, real invasive um, behavior. Also, another example, there's things where the Supreme Court ruled on this a, couple, a few years ago, so now it's not as flagrant, but there are cases where the police would pull you over, they would think you were drunk driving, you'd say, no, I wasn't, they'd want to, you know, give you a breathalyzer, you might refuse, and they were doing stuff, like they would forcibly hold you down and, and draw your blood, you know, to be able to, because otherwise if you went and they took you in by the time they could test you or whatever, maybe you, you know, you would have processed some of the alcohol in your system. So they wanted to go ahead and grab it right away. So that, again, that kind of stuff happens because they're sitting on the, on the roads. Okay. What about public transportation? Can you imagine if airplanes or movie theaters ran their businesses the way public buses and subways work? Now, if you've never been around a major city, you don't know what I'm talking about, but it looks like that. All right. <laughs> Now, you might say, okay, that's a Groucho Marx thing you got on Google Image Search. It has nothing. Right, but it does look like that. That's what I'm saying. Uh, so, again, if you haven't lived in a big city, but I'm t it's, it's crazy. There are literally people get squished in, and you're like this until the next stop. So, for some people who are claustrophobic, they literally can't use the public transportation, government transportation, state transportation, all right, in, the, in these things. So, just to think through, why is that, right? Because movies on opening night, lots of people want to see it. But it's not like if you go to see Spider-Man opening night, everyone gets crunched in the, oh, and it's like, did you like the movie? I couldn't tell. Some guy was sitting on my face. But, so again, why is that? Because the companies know our customers wouldn't like the product if we let so many people rush in, right? And so again, just the differences in incentives that the people who run the agencies that control like the New York City subway system, it's just different incentives. It's not like the mayor's gonna lose next election because the subways are too crowded at 6 p.m. That's, that's not going to be an issue. Okay, let me skip ahead. I'm running out of time here. To Let me just end with immigration here. I'm going to solve the immigration problem for us in two minutes. You ready? <laughs> so here, something like prayer in school, right? People, if, you, if you're not from the United States, I realize some of these political battles might not mean as much to you, but in the United States, a while ago, it was this real big controversial thing about, oh, should, in government schools, should people be allowed to pray? Like, should the kids be allowed to pray before their meals? 
Should the pre, you know, teacher open up with a, a prayer or whatever? And there are arguments on both sides. And so some people were saying, you know, of course not, because if, my, if I'm an atheist and I'm sending my kid to the government school, you know, I don't want them forcing religion down their throat. And other people were like, yeah, but my kids are, t- are forced to learn all kinds of stuff that I have complete moral objections to. And you just say that's part of the curriculum. So you're saying my kid can't like say grace before lunch. That's insane. Okay, so you are taking a political view there. You're saying my, my religion's wrong. All right, so that, those are the battles. And I would just say there's no solution to that, right? I, I think just the ultimate answer is privatize everything. Have this, the schools be privatized. Why was that funny? <laughs> that's not a joke. <laughs> and, and so there's no, there's no answer. It's not like you say, oh, what's the libertarian take on prayer and, and government school? I don't think there is. Just like, privatize the schools. That's how you would solve that. If you know, religious parents want to send their kids to schools where they can pray, they can. And if other people want to send schools where it's just purely secular, they do that. And that's, that's how you solve it. So likewise, you know, that's my answer with immigration, just privatizing the border. So in other words, I don't think there really is a great answer when you say, oh, what's the libertarian position on immigration to say, you know, what's, what's the right way for the federal government to decide who gets to cross borders? That to me, that's like saying, what's the libertarian position on how the USSR should have done bread production? You know, and it says they privatize it. There's no, you know, so there's, but also within this thing, I will say a lot of self-described libertarians who are for what they call open borders, they use some rhetoric that I think is clearly, you know, incorrect here. Things like, oh, there's a right to travel. Well, no, there's not a right to just travel wherever you want. Like that doesn't, you know, malls, restaurants, country clubs, someone can't just come into your house and just say, you know, I have a freedom to travel where I want. Right. So so I'm saying some of the rhetoric in this debate. Now, let me last thing I'll show you. So in a free society, private landers set whatever policies they want. Look at this. I even got a diagram. We'll end on this. So I want to show you. So instead of having bureaucrats in D.C. decide who can come, if it were all privately owned, each of these people could decide. And notice, conveniently, everyone has really short names. Otherwise. (laughs) All right. And now here, watch. I can even handle an objection because somebody's wait a minute. What if people like what if Pam's crazy? And she just lets all these ISIS, you know, terrorists or whatever come in here. Well, look at this. The benefit is, ready? Bam! You've got these guys there. Okay? So the, my point is, even if you do think that, oh, Pam can't be trusted to right, set the right border policy, there's other people around. So it's not like the case for immigration control was really crucial that this, the map looked like that and not like that, right? What if Mexico's border had just happened to look like that? Right? It's not like, it's, oh, shoot, privatization doesn't work, right? So anyway, obviously there's a lot here and I'm, I'm sweeping under the rug, but you get, the, you get the basic gist of it. Okay, thanks everyone.